great-grandparents emigrated from Ireland and moved into a neighborhood here in Philadelphia called Kensington. That was, uh, at the time, very vibrant, lots of factories and lots of workers that had access to those factory jobs. But like many Irish immigrants and other European immigrants, my grandparents fled the city. They moved out to the suburbs in the 1950s for all the reasons that we know people fled cities at that time and the policies that encouraged them to. And then, you know, now the, the grandchild of those folks that fled the city, I returned And I came back into Philadelphia when I was uh, just 18 years old to live in the city rather than the suburbs, like a lot of people my age choosing to live in cities after our parents and grandparents made the different decision. So I think for me, I have a deep held passion and love for my city, for my hometown. I joke, and if you know, we have two major rivers, the Schuylkill and the Delaware River. I joke that if you cut me, I bleed Schuylkill. I love this town so much. And so as someone whose family history is so tied up in these issues of disinvestment and reinvestment, I think for me personally, I feel a responsibility to devote my time and my energy towards uh, improving the city for the new folks that are moving here, including a whole new generation of immigrants from Mexico, from Vietnam, from Cambodia, from Bhutan. That's my neighborhood alone. I hear 50 different languages spoken on the bus. How do we improve this neighborhood for those folks that are choosing to live here and for the folks that lived in that neighborhood for a really long time and sat through the tough times? And so I see community development as a way to do that and a way to do that equitably. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Today, we'll be speaking with Frank Woodruff, who is the Executive Director of the National Alliance of Community Economic Development Associations, an alliance of 43 associations in 28 states representing more than 3,500 community-based organizations that are champions, stewards, and thought leaders for community development at the state and local level. And our other guest is Beth McConnell. She is the Policy Director at the Philadelphia Association of Community Development Corporations, which represents more than 100 member organizations, including nearly 50 community development corporations, who worked to develop affordable housing, revitalize commercial corridors, and stabilize Philadelphia's neighborhoods. Frank and Beth, thank you both for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So your session at the New Partners to Smart Growth Conference is titled Equitable Development and Smart Growth at an Impasse. The description of this session suggests that there are times when the goals of smart growth and equitable development are at odds with each other. Is this the case, and how does this create an impasse? I'll take this one first, Beth, if it's okay with you. Uh, When I started to look into the smart growth model some time back, I had one time looked it up on Wikipedia, and the Wikipedia definition talks about 
smart growth in terms of a urban planning theory that concentrates growth in compact walkable areas. So basically what it tries to do is, is minimize sprawl through transitory development, parks, you know, bike-friendly policies and, and bike lanes and schools, streets, and mixed-use development. But what is lacking in the definition of smart growth is for whom these things are done. Uh, and that's, I think, what the piece that equitable development brings to the table. So I think there are examples in the country, and not the least of which is in the city of Portland, where these two models are in an impasse, maybe the wrong way to frame it, or maybe too dramatic of a way to frame it, but where they are certainly, I don't think, very in lockstep with each other. Thanks, Frank. Beth, how do you see these issues interacting in Philadelphia? Yeah, I think as as Frank said, it's, you know, when people return to cities, which is happening here in Philadelphia now, after decades and decades of decline, people recognize the value that cities provide and are moving back in here to Philadelphia. Population is growing, new buildings are being put in, and that is smart growth. But when it's done in a way that doesn't lift all boats, that doesn't lead to more opportunity for the people that have been here, the people who stuck it out during the tough years, that's where we have an impasse. But we can get past it. We absolutely can welcome new growth and new investment into our urban centers and do it in a way that's equitable and attacks issues like economic inequality and economic segregation that unfortunately persists in Philadelphia and many other major cities. How do we move past that impasse? Or how do we move past where we have these maybe maybe two groups of people with goals that ought to be very synergistic and compatible, maybe not working together as smoothly as they should. Any suggestions for how we move past that impasse? Yeah, I think we have to be really deliberate and really strategic about it. So when a developer is coming into a neighborhood and wants to build new apartments, for example, that's right near a transit station, a rail station, being thoughtful about that when coming into the community thinking, how can I ensure that people in this neighborhood benefit from this development beyond It's just sheer existence. But can there be community space put in that gives folks in the neighborhood a place either to have their kids' birthday parties or to have community meetings? Can I be building in some affordable units that folks in the neighborhood would kind of fit with what their income is, that they could actually afford to pay for it? And and a lot of this comes to policy as well, right? So what policies can cities put in place that facilitate those kinds of conversations and negotiations between the community and a developer? Yeah, one thing I would add to what Beth said is to be real clear about what the priorities are when thinking about the future of an area or a neighborhood or a place. And first and foremost, the people who are there have to be put first, or at least be clear that they are not being put first. My wife and I just got into a debate the other night. She is taking an economic development course that is taught by, uh, you know, bigwig in the economic development department here in a local county in Virginia. And it was very clear by the way he teaches the class that his version of economic development is what maximizes tax revenue. And that's okay if that's, if we're going to be clear up front about that's what we're trying to do, though, because uh, if we're putting people first, that is not necessarily the same thing. And so as long as we prioritize the people who are there first when we're thinking about the future of a place, planning for it, that's the first thing you got to do. Give us an example of a place where you think smart growth and equitable development are coming together in a very synergistic way. And what are the dynamics that make it work in this particular example and how can we replicate them? 
You know, Frank and I were just talking about this. One example I could provide here in Philadelphia is a place called Paseo Verde, which um, some folks may be familiar with if you follow uh, development nationally. Paseo Verde was built by an organization called Asociación Puerto San Marcha in a part of North Philadelphia near Temple University. This is a neighborhood that's seen a lot of new investment and growth as a result of Temple's university's investments, but it's also a neighborhood that has been struggling with high rates of poverty, lots of vacant property, and all of the associated problems that go with disinvestment for decades. So APM built Paseo Verde. It's mixed income, so about half of the units are renting market rate, and about half of the units are affordable to low-income folks, income-restricted. It's transit-oriented development right by the Temple University train station. So folks that live in the units have easy access to transit and jobs that, of course, those trains will take them to. It's platinum LEED certified, so it's a highly energy efficient and also green building. They use a lot of green building methods in it. And it's a really nice place to live. And so that, I think, is a really great example of equitable development and smart growth, creating economically diverse and also high quality communities. And Beth, do you think that that model can be imported to other communities? Absolutely, but it's a challenge because this is expensive work to do, especially when you're ensuring that half of the units are affordable to people with low incomes. Building those kinds of developments requires subsidies, and increasingly those subsidies are harder and harder to get as Washington cuts funding for those kinds of programs. But it can be done, it has been done, and I think it's an excellent model for the future. Can you share with our listeners the challenge or, or problem you're facing in Philadelphia that the Philadelphia Land Bank seeks to solve? Sure. Um, Philadelphia, like many cities, of course, that struggled with disinvestment for a long time, has a significant number of vacant properties. At last count, the number is around thirty-five to 38,000 vacant properties. And they're in every single neighborhood throughout our city, but certainly higher concentrations in our poorest neighborhoods. And some of those properties are privately owned including the one that's owned by a man named Golden Eubanks who bought it in 1920, I believe, and he died in 1964. So it's no surprise that he has not paid his property taxes and he has not kept up his home, but he is still the owner of record of that property. Some of them are also owned by three different city agencies that, you know, a redevelopment authority, a housing development corporation, an office of public property, And then some are owned by the Philadelphia Housing Authority. And so when you go to one block and you are looking to assemble properties for the community garden, maybe you want to build affordable homes, maybe you want to build market rate homes, whatever it might be, the process of negotiating all of those different owners and getting permission from them is an absolute nightmare. And it takes years if it can be done successfully. And and that's an effective way to reinvest in our neighborhoods and, and, and attack these problems. So what the Philadelphia Land Bank is designed to do is consolidate ownership of the publicly owned inventory. And um, hopefully at some point in the future, we'll be able to get access to the PHA, the Housing Authority owned inventory, but that'll be a separate timeline. And then has new tools, powers of acquisition to acquire those privately held vacant tax delinquent parcels so that we can put them together in one package basically and make them available for reuse. Bernice and I have faced this problem. We worked all over the country in communities where this problem of vacant and abandoned properties and reacquiring properties that are in tax delinquency is a huge obstacle to redevelopment. 
Can you speak a little bit about what needed to happen in terms of streamlining the process of reacquiring the properties and how that's actually going to work with the Philadelphia Land Bank? Sure. Well, the short answer to that question is we don't know yet because we haven't tried it, but Philadelphia Land Bank is going to do a test, a pilot program of acquisition soon. Land banks in many states exist because of state enabling legislation that their state legislatures pass that allow them to get set up and have this unique power. And in Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia Land Bank was one of the first, but not the first to get set up here in the state. And none of the land banks that exist in Pennsylvania have yet tried using this new power of acquisition. Like I said, a pilot project is underway. Hopefully will happen early in the new year of a number of properties in a section of Philadelphia called Brewery. And so we'll see how that works, how kind of the legal process works and what some of the kinks are in using it. The idea, of course, is when you've got a property that's significantly tax delinquent and the owner has been completely unresponsive and maybe you just cannot find them, maybe because they've passed away or they've just abdicated this responsibility, this is the tool that we have to bring it into the public inventory, usually for a particular purpose. You can certainly send the property to sheriff sale and the highest bidder can buy it. But when you're thinking about creating affordable homes or maybe a community green space, that's not always the right strategy. And when you're trying to assemble multiple lots for a project, like a a multifamily project, that's also not the right strategy. So we're really optimistic about what the land bank can help us do here in Philadelphia on that front. It seems as if the Philadelphia land bank is operating at the nexus, right at the heart of one of the big challenges for integrating smart growth and equity, which is how do we encourage private investment and reinvestment in neighborhoods, and how do we make it as easy as possible for private developers, while at the same time protecting the public interest and optimizing the benefits of growth and development for the existing residents of a community. How do we make sure that their boats rise as the neighborhoods revitalize? What are you doing in Philly and Frank? What are you doing through your organization that you think is really getting us to that place to ensure that this happens? Let me put it this way. When it comes to what people nationally would refer to maybe as cold real estate market cities like Philadelphia or St. Louis or Detroit or some of these similar Rust Belt cities, there is another name for them. There are clear examples in those areas where the private market has failed. And so to approach these areas as if our goal is to get the private sector to pick up the slack, that's sort of like the cat chasing its own tail. I mean, there's the reason that this place is disinvested is because it's not invested in, right? The private sector left it behind. So I think when these areas are lifted up in significant ways, there is always local government at the table playing a leading role. There's a community-based organization that has the mission to serve the neighborhood, and the organization has the capacity and track record to play a successful role, and there's resources at the table. And those resources could come from the federal government or philanthropy or potentially from some private investor that hadn't been there before or from a local anchor institution such as the hospital or some other interested party. But those are really the big three. You need a mission-based organization that's going to see it through regardless. You need local government leading and you need the resources. Yeah, just to add to that, I think one word that we haven't used yet in this podcast is gentrification. And that really is one of the challenges when you have new investment in a previously blighted area, an undervalued area. And the reason why people who live in that neighborhood are concerned about it, why they use that word gentrification, is the fear of displacement folks getting pushed out of their neighborhoods because they can no longer afford to live there as the community improves, no longer able to take advantage of the benefits of an improving neighborhood. 
or also might feel pushed out or, or get displaced because of cultural changes that make them feel like, A, they're not welcome, or B, there aren't opportunities for them. You know, the store that they used to shop at is no longer there, and in place of it is something that's way more expensive that they can't afford, so they just need to move to another neighborhood. And those are the concerns. But we have strategies. There are things that we can do to mitigate those impacts. For example, if you're a property owner in that neighborhood and you can't keep up with the increase in your property taxes because your home value has gone up, but your income sure has not, we can freeze people's property taxes to allow them to stay in their home and stay in that neighborhood and enjoy the benefits of an improving community. We know we can build affordable housing and improving neighborhoods for income-restricted buyers so that they can, again, stay in that place and live alongside their new neighbors that are bringing new investment. We know that we can help stabilize long-term businesses so that they can serve both the newer residents and the folks that have been there for a long time. So these are things that we can do and we know how to do. And here in Philadelphia at PACDC, we published a policy platform just last year called Beyond Gentrification Towards Equitable Neighborhoods with 19 or 20 different recommendations in five key areas that we encourage policymakers, candidates for mayor and city council to embrace as a way to welcome this development and move beyond the fear of gentrification by giving people a chance to benefit from these changes. So there's also a piece of the gentrification conundrum that puts us in a space of racial and ethnic and economic churning. We actually had a session on this last year at New Partners for Smart Growth, and I'm wondering if either of you have encountered a place where people have really figured out how to live together. Yeah, I mean, I think where I see to be most successful is where you have a strong community organization, whether it's a CDC or a civic association or something like that, that can serve as a table for new residents and existing residents to come together and talk about their hope for their neighborhood, talk about their love for their community and neighborhood, and and be able to connect around that. And I think when people have a place to come and voice their concerns, are listened to and respected, and are taken seriously, I think you can address a lot of these issues around neighborhood change. But it does require having an organization, an institution that has the ability to facilitate those conversations in a really culturally appropriate and well-educated forum. So let's shift gears here a little bit. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? I would say the community building process through whatever model works best when communities are engaged with each other across cultures and across ethnicities and across differences. And one way to do that is through the arts. And that's the tool that I would use if I had to pick just one. I would love to see developers, you know, traditional private market rate developers, approach community benefits agreements and conversations with the community about their project as an absolute starting point for them thinking about their project, not as a difficult issue that they have to deal with when it comes up, but something they're baking into their plans. Excellent. And then what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Be involved in policy advocacy. Go out there and change the minds of the decision makers who have the most power. And I'd add just get involved in your local civic association and get to know your neighbors. If you're successful in the work that you're doing, what does the world look like in 30 years from now? I don't know, Beth. What what does it look like to you? 
I want to be practical. I really want to see our poverty rate come down, not because people moved, but because they had access to opportunity that they didn't have before. And I'd like to come down a lot. I'd like to see no vacant lots in the city that don't have something green planted on them or growing on them or aren't some sort of community garden or, or yard. And I'd really like to see an end to economic segregation. In 30 years, I would like to live in a world where when I turn on the news at night, our differences are bringing us together and not tearing us apart. Hmm. That's a great answer. I hope we do get to live in this world 30 years or sooner. Well, thank you both for an amazing conversation. And we know your panel is going to be just brimming with great, great, great ideas and firing people up to do the things that you say we should all do. Get involved. Be engaged. Participate. We hope we can inspire at least one more person to do that. Thank you so very much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 